Kristen Ralph Finkbeiner, powered by Moms Rising. We have a great, 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 great show for you today. We start out talking about the January 6th hearings, what happened on January 6th, why it still matters, and why it makes your vote this year, on or before November 8th in the midterm elections, more important than ever before. Next up, we talk about some interesting polling, some powerful polling that's just come in from Paid Leave for All Action, showing that pretty much everyone, Democrats, Republicans, independents, all of us, want every candidate to be supporting, talking about, and passing paid family medical leave and to get their bans off our bodies when it comes to choice. We want them to be pro-choice. After that, we dive into looking at natural disasters and the resilience force around us and how we need to advance fair pay, workplace protections, and more for the resilience force. And then we close the show taking a deep look at what's happening with hunger in America and how you can help. We're going to jump right in with our first guest. We are joined right now by an amazing, spectacular, nation-lifting guest who you are going to love, 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 Jill Garvey of the Western State Center. Welcome, Jill. Hi, thank you for having me. I'm really glad you're on because the Western State Center is tracking a lot of things, explaining a lot of things, and fighting disinformation and busting myths. Right now, we are still, as a country, dealing with the failed takeover of our government on January 6th when Donald Trump refused to really acknowledge even the outcome of the popular vote and the vote in the Electoral College and just wanted to throw democracy out the door. We're getting more and more news about that every day. Can you share a little bit about why the January 6th exploration of what really happened is still important today? Yeah, I think uh, what you often hear folks from my organization saying is um, that the attacks on the Capitol started that day and haven't really stopped, right? The attacks on democracy and the legitimacy of our democratic practices um, has been under an intense assault ever since. Um, so so we often think of it as a single day event that was traumatizing, um, but that, that this trauma like has just rolled forward every day since. And so obviously I think a lot of people are feeling um, very nervous about the upcoming elections and what we're gonna see on that day and in the aftermath. One of the things that I saw come across the news that I did a double, triple, quadruple take on is that of the Republican candidates, about between 40 and 60 percent are what is now called election deniers have jumped onto the train of saying this election, these votes don't count. They don't matter. You know, it doesn't matter if you vote. People who are listening, your vote matters. Your vote counts. Please do not listen to them. I always have to say this, even when I'm just talking about what's going on. But what is going on with these election deniers? What is happening? Can you explain to people why? I think this really plays well. I think it really harkens back to, to some of the, the conspiracy theories and the roots of the conspiracy theories and the roots of the disinformation that we see. Um, it's this really absurd construct of everything's a conspiracy, everything's a big lie, and yet I'm running for office. Yeah. Right? Um, there's some hypocrisy there. Right. Like, right there. like, you just have to, like, sit out here and say, there's some hypocrisy right there. Like, yeah. yes. Our, um, you see, so January 6th, I think, really 
knitted together a, a lot of what I would say white nationalist conspiracies, right? So the anti-masking, the anti-vaccine contingent, the QAnon, Oath Keepers, Proud Boys, right? Um, they were always sort of like taking a different angle on this anti-government folks, right? And January 6th was like the great, the great stitch up of all the conspiracies. Um, and I think it sort of launched, uh, you know, not a lot of people saw how successful Trump was. He lost the election, but never had to admit to losing the election, right? And in many ways retained a lot of, amassed and retained a lot of political power. And let's not, you know, let's not forget he amassed a lot of campaign money, right? Um, and so uh, there became this viable pathway, right, to, to framing a, a run for office or a viability of an election, um, of a campaign, even though your talking points are that our government is, you know, a sham and evil. Yeah, I mean, there is a problem. So first of all, every listener out there, check your sources of information. There's a lot of intentional disinformation happening, particularly about democracy, particularly about politics, that is leading us toward white nationalism, fascism, extremism in really horrifying ways that are a direct assault on actual real life democracy, which many of us, including me, love. I love democracy. Hello, democracy. Let me give you a hug. And the best way to give democracy a hug is to right now check if you're registered to vote. Make sure in many states you can still get registered to vote for the midterm elections where you need to vote by November 8th. And then make a plan to vote November 8th and make sure you do research about who you're voting for and you're not voting for an elections denier, which is basically a democracy denier, which is basically someone who wants to take away your right to vote. And so it's really a critical time right now to vote because as we see more and more push towards state power because of the U.S. Supreme Court decisions, we want to make sure that you don't just vote for the members of Congress that are on your ballot, vote down ballot for those state legislative positions, for those city councils, for those county councils. And Google is your friend here or whatever browser you like, use your Google browser or whatever browser you love to Google the candidates. And again, make sure you're not voting for a democracy denier, an election denier, a white supremacist, a terrible, terrible, terrible situation creator of a candidate. So where's their hope in this? I mean, there's a really bad situation happening with between 40 to 60% of Republican candidates right now being anti-democracy, which to me is anti-American, which to me is anti-patriotic, which to me is anti-humanity, just saying. So where's their hope in this? I think there's actually a lot of hope in building coalitions, investing in younger generations, um, I'll use my kids as an example. Um, I was approached by an election denier who was running for Congress while on vacation this summer, handed me and my 10 year old a card with a lot of words. And the words were all code for the kinds of conspiracies that I'm, you know, trying to dismantle every day. <laughs> and my kid was like, what is this? I don't get it. Right. And I was like, started to decode some of the stuff. And I, and I said, you know, one of the things was save the children. <laughs> and so I, I said, well, well, clearly this person is in support of probably a full ban on abortion, you know, without exception. 
And my kid was very quick to be like, yeah, abortion bans in 16 states. That's awful. Right. Um, I do think we have to like gird ourselves for the long haul. Mm-hmm. Is, um, you know, white nationalism, authoritarian movements have have taken hold in the mainstream in culture in a way that's very scary and very concerning um, and is going to take a lot of intentional organizing, voting, right? Um, campaigning, coalition building to, to push back on. Many of us remember the anti-immigrant movements, right? Of 15 years ago, the Tea Party movement, right? That was almost just a precursor for what we're dealing with now. And it takes an immense amount of effort and sort of clear-eyed messaging to get people to understand what they're consuming in terms of information and then push back on it. But it can be done. Definitely can be done. And one of the things I think is important that the Western State Center does, and everybody should get involved with the Western State Center, support the Western State Center, is really identify and make sure that people know about the white supremacist movement. A lot of people are like, white supremacy, what is that? How do people in their own communities identify the white supremacist movement and how should people fight back against it? So um, I think the tough part right now is, is I mean, I, I always recommend people read up on sort of our um, approach to understanding white nationalism, which is also understanding anti-Semitism. Uh, we saw that this week and last week with Kanye West's commentary you know, awful commentary about Jewish people, um, that anti-Semitism animates white nationalism, right? And so it's very difficult to dismantle white nationalism without combating anti-Semitism. It's not a separate thing, right? All these conspiracy theories and this white nationalist ideology is rooted in anti-Semitism. Um, I think the the things the very practical things that people can do is to see where they can intervene so we have a confronting white nationalism for um for schools which is primarily focused on intervening in high schools um we have uh we've worked with um, folks who developed a caregiver's guide um, so anybody who's a caregiver can intervene in radicalization um, in young people um, we're coming out with a librarian's toolkit because librarians are actually on the front lines of our democracy in many ways, right? They're in our communities. Um, they're facing down, you know, attacks on critical race theory and attacks on books. You know, there are some like in front lines of these, these attacks, these efforts to ban books. Um, so arming our sort of civil society, right? Educators, librarians, civil servants, um, municipal, I mean, municipal leaders, even the folks on like, I'm in Chicago, we have local school councils, right? Every school has its own council. Those folks all probably need training in how to intervene. And it's going to be, you know, death by a thousand cuts, right? Like, the only way to take it down is to really, I think, arm people at the grassroots level to find those interventions. 
And I think that's really important. It's a constant, constant vigilance to protect our democracy. And can I just tell, I am so sad that we have to do this. It is yucky. It's awful. It's evil. It's racist. It's sexist. It's harmful to our democracy. And, you know, it's so upsetting that it's happening and yet it's happening. So what that means, though, is, is that we need to pay attention in our school boards. Are we having a push against full curriculum of accurate teaching of history. If that is happening, then we need to push back. Are we seeing a push against sex education, against inclusion of LGBTQIA students and families? If so, then we need to push back. Make sure that if you see something, you say something. If you see anti-Semitism, racism, or sexism, we need to push back. And we can push back together. That's the beautiful thing that I think you also said is that, you know, we're not alone in this fight. We just did some polling at Moms Rising and the majority of people actually are on the side of sanity and against white supremacy and against, you know, banning books, limiting who we love and attacking our bodily autonomy. The majority of people (laughs) are on the side of democracy. And so, you know, when you see this happening, if you see this happening in your local school board, get together with other parents, other people, other moms, get together with Moms Rising, with the Western State Center. We're here to help and support. Moms Rising is doing a series of trainings um, coming up that people can get involved with. I know Western State Center does trainings as well, really with toolkits that even if you can't come to the training, we'll still have the toolkits and they're from lots of different experts, um, really about how to, in our daily lives, make sure that democracy does not become a spectator sport because when we take our hands off the wheel of democracy, sometimes bad things happen <laughs> like this. So how can people get involved with the Western State Center and where can they sign up and stay involved and get accurate information? So we we send out lots of emails about what we're doing. Um, you can sign up on our website, westernstatecenter.org. That also, we also have a resources page that has all our toolkits. They're all free to download, um, which is great. Um, I think they're very accessible. Um, so even if you can't make a training, you can download a toolkit um, and find it, I think, very useful in your you know, school or you know, wider community. Thank you. Thank you so much for being on Jill Garvey with the Western State Center. Thank you for all you do. Thank you for fighting against hate. Thank you for building democracy and building change. Thank you. Thank you to you and and to Moms Rising. Huge fan. Well, we're huge fans right back. Thank you. Okay. Take care. We're going to take a quick break, but stick around. We'll be right back with our next guest talking about action, paid leave for all action, your vote, candidates, how they intermix, and why it matters. We'll be back in a quick clip. Ralph Finkbeiner, powered by Moms Rising. We are joined right now by Don Hucklebridge, paid leap for all action. Yes, and we are talking action. My dog's talking action. Everybody <laughs> is really excited about Don. Don, you have a new poll out, and the new poll shows the incredible support for actual paid leave for all. 
It does. Yes. And thank you for having me, Kristen. It's so good to see you again or hear you again. Um, Yes. So we have a new poll and we've done a lot of polling. Lots of people done polling. I know polling gets kind of boring. Um, We know paid leave is wildly popular. Every poll confirms this. We hear it all the time from voters and families. But this is really interesting. We are seeing something remarkable this election season. And what we want to make clear is that voters really, really, really want paid leave and candidates should be taking a note and they should be running on this. Um, So, yeah, we did actually a few polls, but the the main one um, that I'll talk about is we did an overall Senate battleground poll um, and we found that 81 percent of battleground voters support paid leave. Uh, So this is across Arizona, Georgia, North Carolina, Nevada. I'm probably saying that wrong, but Pennsylvania, Wisconsin which is a double-digit increase in support since the Supreme Court overturned Roe v. Wade. And, and the thing here, I have to pause. Yeah, yeah. 81% support, double-digit increase since Roe v. Wade was overturned. Yep. Battleground states, those are relatively conservative states, people. We are not talking about, you know, big, democratic, super liberal, progressive states where the support for paid family medical leave is way higher, frankly. Right. We're right. talking about somewhat conservative states. I just want to pause there yeah. because this shows the transpartisan, cross-partisan, bipartisan, all parties totally. love of paid family medical leave. So sorry to interrupt. I want you no, to- no, that was a very important, you know, um, highlight to make. Um, and to your point about bipartisan, tripartisan, uh, three quarters of independent voters and over two thirds of Republican voters uh, were supportive as well. And we found it's become much more um, urgent in the last few months, not surprisingly. Uh, I think it was a third of battleground voters have become more supportive since Roe v. Wade was overturned. And and what I want to just make a quick little note about is that, um, you know, first of all, none of the states that are poised to ban abortion provide paid family leave. But by no means are we suggesting that these issues are tradable or that we can accept one and not the other. In fact, what we found was that candidates who oppose abortion rights and paid leave took a double hit. So in a generic ballot, I'm sorry, there's a lot of numbers, so I'll try to keep it simple, but a Republican who opposed both abortion rights and paid leave gives their opponent a 35-point edge. And this is interesting, with suburban women, with um, what I think are more likely to be sort of swing voters, a 56-point advantage. So this is something, you know, those two issues, which are crises, you know, freedom and family. These these are crises for working families all across this country. They impact our daily lives, our pocketbooks. Um, and this is something that should be front and center right now in these final weeks before the election. And I have two thoughts on that. I have many more than two thoughts. I have like a fire hose of thoughts, but two <laughs> thoughts right now for listeners, especially. We have the November 8th midterm elections coming very soon on November 8th. And you can use this information right now in real life, in real time, to reach out to all the candidates in your life, city, county, state, federal, and tell them paid family medical leave is incredibly popular and taking away people's bodily autonomy is, no surprise, incredibly unpopular. So when they're running for office, if they want to win, they want to be pro-choice and pro-paid family medical leave. If they want to lose, they can be anti both of those things. And you can go right up to the candidates and say, hey, paid leave for all action did this incredible poll. You can see it yourself. You don't have to believe me. Where can they see it themselves if they want to share it with the candidate? 
Um, well, that is a good question. It is, it is public, um, so it's not on our website, but um, it is public. So I, I, hmm, I don't know a good way to. I can we can tweet it. How about that? <laughs> I think that's what I was thinking. If you tweet it out, pay, then people can just Check go to Twitter out. and find it. That's a great yeah. way. I mean, Twitter is like the great way to get information out. Yeah, and to Which, your point about you know, should be from at should they be looking for at Dawn? So yeah, the, since this is um. The best thing right now is um, my Twitter, which is dhucklebridge, D-H-U-C-K-E-L bridge um, on Twitter. And I will be sure tonight to retweet it and you'll see it. <clears throat> and I can even pin it at the top. And I'll retweet your retweet. So if you're Perfect. really looking for it, if you look at me <laughs> or Dawn, I'm at Ralph Finer on Twitter. Both of us, we're tag teaming this. Awesome. <laughs> and it was interesting that, you know, to your point about what it does for a candidate, we found that just one single statement about how the candidate for Senate and their state supports paid family, parental, and medical leave for all workers and will defend abortion rights doubled that Democrat's margin of victory. So, I mean, there are pages of data about um, how important this is to voters, how this motivates voters, how it motivates women in particular across parties. And this is just something, um, again, it comes back to freedoms and family. And this is something that should be on everyone's agenda. 150%. The other thing that I wanted to bring up that is so important, in addition to every listener should present this information to all of the candidates, city, county, state, and federal, that if they want to win, they want to be pro-paid family medical leave and pro-choice, is what you brought up about so many places, Republicans have been anti-paid family medical leave and anti-choice. There is radical hypocrisy happening out there, people. Of course, we don't want to trade either or. We need both and we need pro-choice and pro-paid family medical leave. This is not a trade. And it really shows that this is not about helping families, this taking away of people who are having babies' ability to decide if, when, and how many babies to have. It's not about protecting families because if it was, they would have been paid family medical leave positive. They would have been proactive about childcare. They would have been pushing forward a care agenda and they have not. So mm-hmm. I just want to point that out as we're having a paid leave for all action conversation and a Kristen action conversation. Republicans have blocked actual pro-family, pro-freedom to be able to decide if, when, and how many children you have. Pro-freedom to be able to be there for a baby's first breath, for your own medical significant crisis, or for a parent's last breath. They've blocked all of those freedoms to be able to be there, to be able to live, love, and grow at the same time as they've been taking away our bodily autonomy. So if you're looking for who to vote for, the Republican Party, for the first time in you know a long time, is completely, completely, completely blocking the majority of things that are good for families. And that means they're blocking things that are good for the economy. I'm just saying, that is my Kristen action hat, paid leave for all action hat. Do you have any thoughts on that? <laughs> I agree. I agree. I mean, um, it's funny how sometimes issues that may disproportionately impact women or families are sort of considered secondary, soft, things that can be sidelined, put off. Um, these are economic imperatives. You know, these are bread and butter issues, as we say, kitchen table issues. I mean, this is about people's make how families make ends meet this is about being there for the people you love this is about the freedom to choose you know the course of your life um so yeah these these are 
truly foundational issues that are important to everybody and candidates need to be talking about it. And if I can just share one more quick little fact, yes. this blows my mind because we've done all these national polls, battleground polls, frontline polls, but we actually went into a couple of states recently and did polls within the states. And the one that just, you know, again, I know how wildly popular this issue is, but I, we went to North Carolina and this blew me away. We found that there was a record high support for paid leave, 88% in the Tar Heel state. 88% of independents and 77% of Republicans. So just to say, um, like, I've never seen that before. You know, there was no issue. I mean, that's, that's up there. It's it's a top number one issue. So again, candidates, if you're listening, you need to be running on paid leave. Yes. Sorry, I got so excited. You're right. Thank you. <laughs> we also at Moms Rising have done some recent polling candidates and people who want to share information with candidates, we found that 84% of moms are more likely to vote for a candidate who supports a caregiving agenda that includes at least 12 weeks of paid family medical leave, universal childcare and pre-K, and increased investments in home and community-based services that help people live independently as they age or who have a disability. 84% are more likely to vote for a candidate who supports those policies. That's a really big deal. And we found that when you combine that agenda with an abortion access, two thirds of women are more likely to vote for those candidates. These are powerful issues. We know that. We know they're powerful. Don knows it. I know it. We all know it because we live it, right? But for some reason, it appears many candidates do not yet know this. So listen, <laughs> it is your job to tell the candidates at the city, at the county, at the state, and at the federal level. And I say that because this year is a midterm election, which means we're doing down ballot voting, which means we're voting for state legislators and county and city in big ways, in addition to voting for our members of Congress. Um, and decisions are being made in state legislatures about these policies, too. So tell all the candidates that we need paid family medical leave bodily autonomy, meaning they need to be pro-choice, and we need childcare and home and community-based services. Full stop. And that boosts our economy. It builds jobs. It helps families. It helps businesses. We have rooms full of data. We have polling that you would not believe. We have so much data, and we have our own lives that can share why this is actually so important. Do you have any advice for people who are voting who might feel overwhelmed by down-ballot voting because it's like, oh my gosh, who are these people I've never heard of? I mean, you know, in an ideal world, you're going to try to research, you're going to try to look them up, you're going to try to meet them if you can, see them on the corner. Um, but I'll tell you my dirty little secret, when in doubt, vote for the woman. <laughs> <laughs> you know, that secret is... No, I'm kidding. I'm pretty, I'm pretty upfront about this. Um, I, I tend to, yeah. if, if there's a question, I'm going to vote for the woman. So, yeah. Yeah, and that, but that that's actually, Rutgers University did a whole bunch of research on um, who supports families as a whole. And the woman actually, regardless of political party, did way better. Yeah, because yeah. and they're, they're more likely to support poverty reduction, family policies, um, yeah, climate. I mean, all I mean, all the issues that I think are, are important to us as um, progressive forward thinking people, so. Yeah, cause, and because and the person was political. You know, that was a phrase, a bumper sticker a long time ago, but it's actually true. <laughs> ah, it is, it is. And it's also just, you know, we just need parity. We need to have more people of all backgrounds and more women in office. And I think this world would be a much better place if we did. So we'll we'll keep working on that. We're gonna get more women in office. We're gonna pass paid leave. 
get more child care, home and community based care. We'll be on we'll be on a good road. I'm excited for the day when our Congress mirrors our country. It does not yet do that. Yeah. Our Congress needs to mirror our country. And, and that's so important. So, Dawn, we have like one minute left. How can people get involved with paid leave for all action or paid leave for all? Well, I can tell you it's a little bit easier to tell you how to get involved with paid leave for all, which is our C3 arm. Um, so you can follow us. You can go on Twitter. It's just pay- everything is paid leave for all. So on Instagram, Facebook, Twitter, um, our website is the same paid leave for all dot org. Um, you can join us. You can share your story, which I know you can do on Moms Rising sites, too. Um, and you can also take action. You know, there's a, a click of a button. You can contact all of your elected representatives and ask them to support paid leave. So I would ask you to do that. Um, get involved, learn more, share your stories, um, follow Moms Rising too, and um, and please stay with us because this fight is just getting just getting fired up. This fight is just getting fired up, and we were so close to winning this past year, people. And you know what it means when we're so close to winning? It's time to double down. That's what it means. It's time to double down. It's time to use that momentum and build that change. Thank you so much for leading the way, Dawn. Thank you for doing all the polling. Thank you for doing all the leadership. Thank you for being on with us today. Thank you, Dawn. Back at you. Thank you so much, Kristen. We're going to take a quick break. But next up, we're talking with uh, the leader, the founder of the Resilience Force. Yes, a real superhero. We'll be back in a quick flash. with me, Kristen Ralph Finkfeiner, powered by Moms Rising. We are joined right now by a guest who you are going to love, 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 a real superhero. We have Socket Sony with Resilience Force. Resilience Force. Don't you want to join? Don't you want to know what's happening? What's happening, Socket? Welcome to the show. Thanks, Kristen. Great to join. I am sitting here uh, in Fort Myers, Florida, where about uh, 10 days ago, Hurricane Ian made landfall. It was a monster uh, it sat there for almost an entire day. It wreaked havoc. Uh, people on the coast got a uh, 10-foot-tall wall, uh, wall of water. But all of these people inland as well were um, impacted. Roofs were blown apart. Streets were impenetrable. Lots and lots of schools closed in the middle of the school year because all of the school districts were flooded. So you have parents waiting to put their kids back into school. So everybody's under enormous pressure, families, parents, mayors, um, school district representatives and, and, and principals, um, and just ordinary working people. And they're all waiting for the workers. Everything depends on the workers who are going to put Florida back together. And uh, I lead an organization called Resilience Force, and we represent these thousands of workers. And it's so important when we're looking at any part of our culture to make sure that we look around and see who it is that holds us together. And too often that becomes invisible. And can you share a little bit more about the workers who make community possible, who make our communities itself, who are the fabric of our lives. Absolutely, absolutely. So, you know, ever since Hurricane Katrina, um, because of climate change, disasters have been more frequent and more destructive. And that means that whether you're in a flooded home or a city block that burned or in, you know, places in the Midwest that got flooded or out in Florida, 
where a tornado or hurricane came through, you need someone to put your life back together. That someone is a resilience worker. Uh, this workforce has grown um, that we call the resilience workforce, and it's overwhelmingly immigrants, overwhelmingly people who have come in successive waves to America um, from Venezuela, before that from Central America, before that from Mexico, even as far away from India and the Philippines and Brazil. Uh, these waves of workers who've come uh, have gotten into this rising industry called resilience, this rising economy. And these are the workers who make recovery possible. If you can get back in, the, in your home and turn your lights back on, it's because of a resilience worker. If you can put your kid back into school, it's because resilience workers repaired that school. This is the workforce that we'll need more and more as disasters can come day after tomorrow in the era of climate change. And something really important about resilience workers is not only to celebrate resilience workers, to thank resilience workers, to have gratitude for resilience workers, but also to pay fairly resilience workers and make sure resilience workers have workplace protections. And can you share a little bit about what's going on, the disparity that resilience workers are experiencing in unfair pay and in being unprotected and sometimes really life risk situations in terms of building back communities. Absolutely. Absolutely. You know, these are essential workers. Uh, resilience workers are the essential workers of the climate era. And we all went through the pandemic and we were all up there on our roofs applauding for the heroic workers in the hospitals um, and in, in the medical field who uh, were helping us carry on with our lives. The people delivering our food to us, the janitors, who were cleaning the hospital buildings, all of these essential workers during the pandemic. And we, you know, we applauded for them. Now, we were right to applaud, but those workers needed something more than applause. They needed fair pay. They needed paid sick days. They need a safety net. They need union representation, right? It's the same with these workers. These are the workers who I woke up this morning and I went to a Home Depot parking lot in Florida. I was there at 5 a.m. and I watched this entire workforce wake up in their cars. That's where they'll be living and sleeping for the months to come all the way up until Christmas. And then I watched them climb into the back of pickup trucks and get taken out to distant corners of Florida that is that are still unlit, still dim, still dark. And they're doing the rebuilding, but they're coming back and telling us the stories often of how they don't get paid how they have no protective gear. They're wading into flooded buildings to pump the water out, and they're interacting with everything in that water. There's another problem they face as well, which is because many of these workers are undocumented, they're targeted by a political class that conveniently uses them in election season. So coming into the midterms, you've got undocumented workers who are at risk not only to the elements, but to the DeSantis politics in Florida. This is a governor who weeks ago sent migrants to Martha's Vineyard, but now he's in this incredible position where he needs those very immigrants for his recovery. And so our message is, this is actually an exquisite moment. We don't think, you know, we're not being cynical about this. This is, this is actually a profound opening in our culture where Governor DeSantis and undocumented immigrants are now suddenly interdependent. A governor who thought he could gain points 
by pushing them away now needs them to come back to perform his recovery because he wants to be elected president based on this recovery. So climate change and climate disasters make this um, make us increasingly in, in interdependent in this world, Kristen. And in the middle of it all, what we realize is all of our recoveries, our ability to live our lives out again, depends on these workers who were unrecognized before the disaster and are essential after. And essential every single day. What policies should people be pushing to make sure that essential workers, resilience workers are paid fairly and protected in these really important jobs that are being carried out each day? Well, the, I mean, the most important thing we can do is fight for worker protections for all workers, right? Fight for a strong Department of Labor. Um, we can push for uh, legal status for undocumented workers who are essential legal status so that they don't have to worry for their own lives and their own families as they save the lives and families of other. And in your states, you can really push for, um, you know, you can really push for your governor uh, to pass legislation that pushes money towards homes and schools to be repaired. What, what we need after a hurricane or a fire uh, or a flood is three things. Firstly, homes to be repaired with a focus on affordable housing stock. You know, secondly, schools to be repaired. And thirdly, a recovery plan with labor protections for the workers. Oh, so important. And if people didn't write it down, they want to keep following what's going on and how to support, how can people become part of the resilience force? You know, get a superhero cape, get the cap, get supporting resilience workers. Absolutely. Go to resiliencefource.org and sign up. And you can follow us on Twitter at resilienceforce uh, or at socket underscore Sony. Now, as we're in this moment in history, there is a lot of cynicism and honestly, for good reason. As we come into this midterm election, what is giving you hope to stay engaged, to keep building resilience, to keep building change and to keep lifting up the importance of acknowledging that we are interdependent in so many ways, yet there is so much discrimination that we need to combat? Well, you know, there's a resident I spoke to today who has two kids she needs to put back in school, who has a roof she needs repairing, and who has a car that got flooded after Hurricane Ian. She needs her life put back together. And she told me today, she doesn't care about politics. What she cares is she wants people to come and help. She wants to be safe. She wants the people helping her to be safe. And she pointed to the crew on her roof and she said, if they're helping me come home, they should stay here. They should be allowed to stay. That's the kind of uh, work that happens during recovery. It's not just homes that get rebuilt. People's lives get rebuilt, communities get rebuilt, and people who are far apart in politics come closer and build bonds. I guarantee that she and that roofing crew working on her house is going to form bonds and they're going to become friends. And she's going to advocate for them the next time there's an election. I have faith in her. She gives me hope. I have faith in her local mayor, who she's going to do, go to and give that message. It's always in our neighborhoods and our communities. We're really focused on solving 
practical problems. And there's a lot of hope in the way we do that. That is so important to look at. And, you know, I'm thinking about, you know, when a natural disaster strikes, remember Mr. Rogers said, look around and look for the helpers. And that's where you find hope, you know, but it's so important here, just like pulling that thread through to make sure that the helpers are paid fairly and have workplace protections, right? That's right. And so, you know, the helpers can give us hope and can inspire us and can, you know, help us build resilience, but that is not okay if the helpers are paid unfairly and are unsafe in their working conditions. So at the city level, is there anything people can do at the city level to help with fair pay and working conditions? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, wherever you are, you know, you are living in a place where a disaster could come day after tomorrow. So at the city level, just reach out to your local electeds and ask, hey, what's the resilience plan for my city? And does it include fair pay for the workers who are going to make us stronger, who are going to bring us back? Just ask that. Even just starting to have the conversation shines the light on a group of workers who haven't been recognized, but who are all around us. So wherever you live, Seattle, Boston, ask, hey, what's the resilience plan for my city? And is there a plan that includes workers in it? I love that. Let's prepare for disaster prior to the disaster actually happening and hoping the disaster does not happen, but also acknowledging that there are resilience workers around us, essential workers around us every day. It doesn't take, you know, a tornado or a hurricane to cause the need for resilience workers. So this is something that you listeners can work on, whether or not you're in a hurricane or a tornado, um, to make sure that all workers, as you said earlier, have access to fair pay, that there is a path to citizenship, which we currently don't have. It's ridiculous. We need immigration policy reforms so that we can respect all immigrant families. And we also need to make sure that there's workplace protections for everyone, which would include resilience workers who are around us all of the time. Can you share again how to get involved, how to support, how to contribute funds, how to stay engaged with your work? Absolutely. Go visit resilienceforce.org. That's resilienceforce.org and get involved. There's lots of ways to sign up, sign in, and join the fight to protect these workers. You know, there was a worker who told me, um, he was saying, we are the white blood cells of America. We go from place to place and prepare and heal. And and so if you want to join and be one of those um, white blood cells, then absolutely visit resiliencefourse.org. So go to resiliencefourse.org, get involved, stay involved. Don't wait for a hurricane to come to your area. Get involved now. Don't wait for the next natural disaster. The time to plan, the time to support is right now. Thank you so much for being on with us. Saket Sony, thank you for all you do. Thank you for building the Resilience Force. Thank you for building change. Thank you for leading the way forward in your leadership on so many levels over so many years. Thank you. Thank you, Chris. Proud to be your friend. Good luck with everything. Same thanks to you. We're going to take a quick break, but don't go away. Next up, we're talking about hunger and food insecurity in America, how you can make sure that we don't have food insecurity and tips for advocacy. We'll be back in just a moment. Kristen Ralph Finer, powered by Moms Rising. We are joined by an amazing, spectacular guest with the inside scoop news you can use, Jessica Burroughs of Moms Rising, who is joining us after just being at the White House. Yes, the White House. Welcome, Jessica. Thank you. Thank you so much for having me. 
I'm so glad you're here. Can you share with our listeners what was the conference that you went to? What was the title at the White House? Absolutely. It was the White House Conference on Hunger, Health, and Nutrition. And as much as I have told people it was at the White House, it was actually a few blocks away in the Ronald Reagan Administrative Building. But it was still very exciting. That's still the White House? The (laughs) Ronald Reagan Administrative Building? I've never even heard of that. So Mm -hmm. what was it like being there? Did you have to go through security to get in? Like, what happened? Absolutely. We had to, uh, we were encouraged to be there two hours early to go through security because the first speaker was President Biden. (gasps) So, you know, we weren't sure if if he was going to show up, but he did. And um, it was it was kind of a small auditorium. I would say I'm not really good with numbers, but I would say there were no more than 500 people. And so it was a pretty small, cozy space. And I have to say that beforehand, I I felt a little cynical, like, oh, I've seen President Biden plenty on TV, like how much better could it be? But honestly, to actually see him and be in the same room with him, it, it was so powerful and amazing to be there yeah. with him. Yeah. It's really interesting. I've had the incredible opportunity to hear President Biden speak when he was vice president and now that he's president too. And what's so interesting is off the cuff, he is very witty. Like he's almost better when the camera is not on him than mm. when the camera's on him. I know he's talked about that a little bit before, you know, and about his struggles with communication. But did you experience that too? Did he tell you lots of stories? Uh, honestly, he was pretty scripted. But for good reason, because, I mean, he had some very powerful things to say. So, you know, really, the goal of him being there was to announce the Biden-Harris administration goal to end hunger and increase healthy eating and physical activity by 2030. So that was his big announcement. So what's that mean? What does that mean? Okay, so just to give a little bit of context about the conference, this is only the second White House conference on hunger that there has ever existed. And the last one was over 50 years ago. So it was long overdue. And at the last one, it was a really big deal. That conference led to the creation of school lunches, WIC, and greatly expanded SNAP, among other things. So there's been a lot of anticipation and hope for this conference. And, you know, and it, They announced a national strategy the day before the conference, and it's really hopeful and exciting, Um, and it includes a lot of components. I I won't go through them all here, but just like as a big picture, the, um, the administration really talked about addressing the root causes of hunger by advancing many of the policies that Moms Rising supports. And I did want to share that at the beginning, he announced his goal to permanently expand the fully refundable child tax credit. And when he said that, the crowd went wild. Everyone was screaming and it was really exciting. That is so exciting. I mean, it's really exciting. And can you share a little bit about what that means? The child tax credit expansion in 2021 led to the largest single year drop in child poverty in the history of our nation. And then it was a temporary expansion. And so it went away. 
the expansion part. There's still a child tax credit. But can you talk a little bit about what happened in 2021 and what's happening now with the child tax credit and what that has to do with hunger? Well, uh, specifically related to hunger, um, the child tax credit, when it was implemented last year, it lowered the number of households reporting not having enough to eat by 26% last year. So lowered it by a full fourth. So that's a really big deal. And so families across the country who have struggled to put food on the table, among other things, they suddenly had money in their bank accounts. Um, I believe it was, uh, depending on the age of the child, uh, $300 per child per month. Um, And just that money enabled people to And I've heard many stories of people who could buy fruits and vegetables for the first time in years or to fix their car and and which then enabled them to get a job and many, um, many basic necessities. So that was really exciting and really painful when then it was taken away. So the administration really wants to permanently expand it and make it make it just something sustainable in this country which is so important i mean like one of the things that i love about the child tax credit expansion of 2021 is that it was proof positive that policy change works hello people we advocate for policy change sometimes we were like does it work well yes we have proof it works we were able to have the largest single year drop in child poverty in the history of our country because of one policy change we can move mountains with policy change. We can save lives. We can build the economy. We can help businesses. And so I'm so excited to hear that at the White House conference that that policy was lifted up as needing to be reinstated in its expanded way. What are you hearing about the current state of child hunger and hunger in America right now? In North Carolina, uh, Moms Rising is actually facilitating a fellowship program for people with the lived experience of hunger. So I hear from these moms every week who are being trained as anti-hunger advocates. And also um, leading up to this conference, the White House hosted a series of regional virtual listening sessions across the country to provide feedback that would inform the national strategy. And people with the lived experience of hunger were encouraged to participate in these listening sessions. And most of the Moms Rising Fellows did participate. So what we heard from them is just how hard it is for so many families in our country to make ends meet, how they are struggling to put food on the table, how many families earn are just scraping by. Uh, they they do not meet the qualifications for federal food food assistance programs, but they barely make enough to get by. And many who do qualify for federal food assistance programs still do not receive um, enough benefit from them. Uh, Many families also talked about how they work hard. They, many of the two parent families, each parent is working multiple jobs and they still can't afford enough to put food on the table. So that's what we're hearing. And one out of 10 households in America is going hungry right now. One out of 10 households in America is still going hungry right now. That is not acceptable. So that's why we need this new campaign, this new effort, this new policy set 
to help end hunger in America. And that's why we can bring hope from the child tax credit that was just passed and had the largest single year drop in child poverty in the history of the nation that we know that we have the policies available to help change and stop hunger in America. What gives you hope, Jessica, as you're working? You've worked a long time on advocacy, policy change. You've worked a long time on grassroots organizing. You've created a lot of really unique and high impact grassroots engagement tactics. What keeps you going and gives you hope? What gives me hope is working with women, um, mostly moms, and giving them a voice to become advocates. Uh, people with the lived experience of hunger or whatever policies we're addressing and what they share with me. Like, for example, uh, one of our anti-hunger fellows, I met her at a food bank where she had spent the night all night waiting in line. And I went to that food bank first thing in the morning and, and just talked to families and, and asked if anyone had a story to share. So that's how I met her. And through her, um, through our connections, um, I've now reconnected her with that food bank who has chosen her to interview her so that she could share her story. Um, and she was, she was so touched that anyone would be interested in her story. She is now volunteering at the food bank as well as a client of the food bank. And she talks about how powerful it is, how she realizes that she has a voice and she can make change. And her and all of the fellows in the program were putting together a book of their stories. And another fellow said she just had no idea when she started this fellowship that she would actually write a story that would be read by lawmakers. So that's incredible. I mean, and it's true. We have so many stories that people submit to Moms Rising that are read by lawmakers. Sometimes they're read out loud on the floor of the House or the Senate by lawmakers. Sometimes yes. they're read by the president or the vice president. Stories have such a high impact. I'm sorry I interrupted you. What were you about to say? No, no, no. That's it. But that's what gives me hope when when moms reclaim their power, when they share their voices and recognize that they really do have power and that they can make changes happen. Yeah. Yeah. And we can make changes happen together because I think the beautiful thing is when we have so many stories that are so similar, it really shows a pattern that needs to be addressed instead of, you know, doing a lot of self-blame about, oh my gosh, I just can't make it work. Well, hardly anybody can make it work. Like it's really hard right now. So that's yes. the policy change. Absolutely. So what is your advice to people who are feeling like my vote doesn't matter. I, I have this on my mind right now because it's going to take all of our votes, people, all of our voices, all of our stories. In this midterm election, the election is on or before November 8th. There's early voting in many states, but you need to have your ballot cast by November 8th at close of business. What's your advice to people who think, you know, that their vote doesn't matter? Well, one thing that uh, the national st strategy that the Biden-Harris Biden administration announced is that they talked about addressing the root causes of hunger and committed to working with Congress to make change happen. They talked about working with Congress to push Congress to not only expand the child tax credit, but invest in affordable housing and child care, raise the minimum wage to $15 an hour, improve transportation options, and many more. 
So the key here is that they need to find willing partners in Congress who they can work with and negotiate with and uh, build build programs. And so our every person's vote matters so that we can elect people to represent us in Congress who can address these root causes and really find solutions to our pressing problems. So important. If people don't know where to vote, you know, and how to make a plan to vote, can where should they go? To vote.org and find their polling place. And Moms Rising has sent out action alerts about where you can find your your polling place and regi- and see if you're registered to vote. Yeah. I mean, I'm glad you brought that up. Many states, the voter registration deadline has passed, but not all. So make sure that you are still registered to vote right now. You can check that you're registered to vote on Moms Rising. Go to the Moms Vote section where you're one-stop shop. We even have toys and games ideas that you can do with your kids while you're voting. You can bring your kid with you to vote. You can make a plan to vote. In some select areas, we have treasure boxes at the polls where you can get toys and games that are tiny toys and games for kids there. We have so much fun for you at Moms Rising on Moms Vote. Um, for you to make voting fun and special for you and your kids so you can be a voter and raise a voter. And thank you, thank you, thank you, Jessica, for being on with us today. Thank you for fighting hunger. Thank you for building change. Thank you for opening avenues for people's stories to be heard. Thank you for building power so that no person has to go hungry. And thank you, thank you, thank you for being on today. Thank you. Thank you so much. And I just want to add in one other point about why every vote counts. Uh, someone named Sherry Beasley is running for senator in North Carolina, um, and she is so she used to be a judge, and she lost that judgeship by I believe less than a hundred votes, something like that. And so every vote matters, and she could win or lose this election by a very small number of votes. So your vote really, really does matter. So please make sure to make a plan to go vote. Yes. Very much for having me. Thank you. Thank you. Well, that's it for our show today. Thanks so much for tackling. Sorry, Eric. Well, that's it for our show today. Thanks so much for tuning in as we tackle the top topics facing our nation in a way that requires the most boring disclaimer in the history of the planet Earth. Here goes. Views expressed on this show, those of the individual speakers, and should not be attributed to Moms Rising, to this station, or to any news or social media service that may disseminate a recording of this show to the public or to any segment of the public. Boom! We'll catch you next week. We're gonna fight for love.